All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 17. And this section, these 17 verses, really is Matthew's wrap-up to the introduction to his Gospel. So chapter 1, 1 through 4, 17 is like the first major section of the Gospel of Matthew. And then we move into a new section in our next recording. And so this section really is the final snapshot of Jesus's pre-ministry life. So it's really still part of his preparation for ministry. As Jesus began his ministry, the Spirit, what we'll see here, is going to lead him into the wilderness to be tested. And that's part of his preparation for ministry. Now to understand this, we need really to, to grasp not just the immediate context in Matthew's gospel, but the broader theological context for the entire story of Israel, because that's really Matthew's thinking and Matthew's whole context for this. And so as Israel, think all the way back to the story of Israel, think back to the Exodus account, think back to Israel coming out of Egypt. And as they come out of Egypt, what happens? Well, they leave Egypt and they go through the sea and enter into the wilderness. Well, guess what? That's what happens with Jesus. He goes through the water, baptism, and he immediately enters into the wilderness. And as Israel goes into the wilderness, they go there as God's son. See, for example, Exodus chapter 4, 22 and 23. They're led into the wilderness, and they're going to be tested there for 40 years. Well, Jesus is led into the wilderness, and he's tested for 40 days. And Jesus seems to be somewhat conscious of this parallel, that he is... He is donning the mantle of Israel, and he's going into the wilderness to be tested just as Israel was. And, and the reason I say he seems conscious of that is because to rebuff the devil's temptations, Jesus actually quotes from passages describing Israel's wilderness testing and Israel's failure. He quotes from Deuteronomy in chapter 6 through 8, which is really all about Israel's experience in the wilderness. And so as the Messiah, as God's son, Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. Everything Israel was called to be and was supposed to be, but failed to be. And so the point of these temptation stories here is that, at least one of the key points, is that where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus, the Messiah, was faithful in the wilderness. And Jesus is also the true human being who passes the test where humans failed the test since the beginning. And so here we see in this account, we see King Jesus, the Messiah, living out steadfast, faithful obedience to God himself. And he's doing so in the wilderness as the Son of God, the very embodiment of Israel. He is, he is the faithful king. And so the story begins in chapter 4, verse 1, like this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice that he's led by the Spirit. As we noted in our last session about his baptism, the Spirit is the one who's going to empower Jesus for ministry. And right now, coming out of his baptism, the Spirit leads him into a time of testing in the wilderness. The desert, east of Jerusalem, out there between Jerusalem and the Jordan River, in the wilderness. And he's going to be tempted by the devil. And that word tempted, the basic meaning really is tested. And, and it could be a temptation-type test or a trial-type test. Uh, 
And what tests do is they reveal the truth about something. Like they reveal the truth about what a student has learned. They reveal a the truth about what kind of person someone is. That's the way tests function. And so Jesus is going to be led by the Spirit, not hoping that he's going to fail. It is, it's going to reveal the truth about Jesus. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is the faithful king, the faithful one. And he's going to be tested specifically by the devil, the arch enemy of God, the one who opposes God's purposes and tests the faithful. So Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And we learn in the very next verse that that testing comes at the end of an extensive period of fasting. Look at verse 2. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, almost a month and a half of fasting. That's a long time. I don't know about you. I have never fasted for that long. I have known people who have, um, and I've heard their experience with it. I myself have never fasted quite that long. So he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Matthew says, he became hungry. Well, of course he became hungry, right? Like he's a human being. Humans get hungry, particularly after 40 days of not eating. And remember, 40 days, as we noted in the intro, is parallel to Israel's 40 years, maybe even parallel to Moses' 40 days on Mount Sinai. Uh, He's out here in the wilderness, uh, kind of recapitulating, re-experiencing, if you will, Israel's wilderness wanderings. And the tempter came to him. He became hungry, verse 3. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. The devil tempts Jesus to use his status and his authority to satisfy himself. He says, If you are. And probably that has the sense of if you are and assumes it's true. It's more the idea of since you are. This particular construction in the Greek has this sense of. If you are this, and it's true, you are. So it doesn't really doubt it. It assumes it. So the idea is, since you're the son of God, there's no need to deny yourself and go hungry. Use your status and your power for your benefit. Uh, You have the power to solve this problem. Why not just make a little bread out of these stones? You could do that. Uh, This seems to me to be roughly parallel to what the apostle John in 1 John calls the lust of the flesh. Use your status. Use your identity. Use your power to satisfy yourself. How does Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 4. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus replies to the devil's deception with Scripture. He actually quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The context is recalling Israel's wilderness experience and being tested to see if they had obeyed, and how God provided manna for them, and they were supposed to trust God's word and trust God's promise. Man shall not live on bread alone. The idea is man's not going to live on physical sustenance alone. That's not enough. You need that, but it's not enough to have genuine life. In order to have genuine life, you have to also depend on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You have to depend on God's word, God's promises, in order to really get a life. Uh, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So the devil tries a second tack, verse 5. The devil took him uh, along into the holy city, that is Jerusalem, 
and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point in the temple, probably the corner overlooking uh, the temple down into the Kidron Valley. And he said to him, verse 6, if you are the son of God, same idea, since this is who you are, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you. And on their hands, they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. Now, both Matthew and Luke record the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. But interestingly, Luke actually puts the temptations in a slightly different order. Luke places this temptation third, not second. And this is important for us because it illustrates that uh, authors of the time had freedom and flexibility to rearrange and adjust some things when telling a story, but they weren't completely free to change the facts. That's actually been true in oral cultures throughout all times. And so while the order is different in Luke and Matthew, the temptations are the same. And so here the devil tempts Jesus to make God prove his care for him. That's the idea of the temptation. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Like I said, probably overlooking the Kidron Valley where the drop is significant. Maybe he does this physically in real life, maybe in a vision. We're not sure. And he says to him, since you're the son of God, surely God's not going to let any harm come to you. So he'll protect you because of who you are. So again, just jump off here and God will send his angels and they will lift you up. And the devil actually quotes scripture to Jesus in his attempt to confuse him. He quotes Psalm 91 verse 11 and 12. And the idea of the quote in the context of this temptation and the devil's use of it is something like this. Uh, Look, Jesus, if God promised to protect David in Psalm 91, how much more is he going to protect David's greater son, you, the Messiah? Uh, There may even be a little bit of self-aggrandizement in this temptation, like the boastful pride of life, again, from 1 John chapter 2. He doesn't tempt him uh, to this uh, out in the desert where no one is. Where does the temptation happen? In Jerusalem, in the capital, in the temple, where everyone would see it and everyone would expect the Messiah to show up in glory and in power and come and deliver Israel. Why don't you do it there, Jesus, where everyone can see how great you are and how awesome you are, rather than out here in the desert by yourself, uh, where it's hot and dry and miserable and you're hungry. Let's go to the temple and let everyone see who you really are. And Jesus replies to him in verse 7 and said to him, on the other hand, like, okay, you're going to quote scripture at me? Well, I'm going to quote scripture back at you. On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, Jesus quotes scripture, this time again, from that same context in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And Jesus really seems to understand the heart of the devil's temptation as testing God. Like, will God actually keep his word to care for you? Will God keep his word to protect you, his faithful son? Uh, Jesus refuses to distrust God's goodness and God's faithfulness. He refuses to make God prove himself. And he refuses to use his status in a self-serving, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting sort of way. So, the devil tries a third tack. Verse 8. And the devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. 
the devil here tempts Jesus with glory and power, like bypass suffering, bypass self-denial, bypass difficulty, and go straight to ruling the world. And he shows them what glory and power look like. And again, this seems roughly parallel to what John says in 1 John chapter 2, the lust of the eyes. And he tries to get Jesus to cut a deal, like worship the devil, serve me, acknowledge me, and you can have glory and power. And note the half-truth. The devil is, in one sense, the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. But the devil isn't the one who has the power to give it to whoever he wishes. That power still belongs to God. But the devil's never been one for uh, you know, straight-up truth. Lies are his, uh, his primary tool. And he's claiming that he has a good amount of influence over the powers of the world, and he does, and he's offering that to Jesus. And what the devil really is offering is a shabby substitute for the everlasting kingdom of God himself. And so, once again, Jesus replies in verse 10 and said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, once again, responds with scripture to combat the lies of the devil with truth. And he quotes once again from Israel's wilderness experience, this time from Deuteronomy 6.13. So it's that same context. And in this specific moment, the context is Israel entering into the promised land that God had promised to give them and all the good that that land offered. And the warning in this section of Deuteronomy 6 is, uh, be careful not to become proud and then forget who God is and go after other gods. Worship the Lord your God, serve him only. And the result of uh, Jesus' reply is this in verse 11. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to serve him and take care of him and minister. Remember that temptation in the middle there where the devil said, Surely God will send angels to protect you and to care for you. And he wanted Jesus to take a shortcut to get there, and Jesus didn't. Well, here we are. At the end of this temptation account, and God does send his angels to care for him and to provide for him and to minister to him. Now, before we look at the summary paragraph that leads into the beginning of Jesus' formal ministry, let's just pause for some reflections from this temptation account. And the first is this. I think we need to always be mindful of the humanity and faithfulness of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 says this, uh, Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is also able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Or Hebrews 4.15 says, For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we have, and yet without sin. Jesus was fully human, and as a human being, he was fully tempted, and his temptations were real. He he really was tempted, and yet he was completely faithful. And for Matthew's narrative, that helps us see Jesus as the faithful Son of God. Uh, Israel was the the Son of God who had failed, but Jesus is the, the ultimate, true, real Son of God who is faithful right here in this test before he enters into ministry. Second reflection is temptation in the devil. And I think we uh, need to remember to take seriously the work and the reality of the devil. We have to learn his strategies. 
And here we see some of them. Uh, we see uh, how he operates by half-truths and lies, by twisting scripture and confusing us. Um, and as disciples, we need to learn from Jesus how to deal with the devil and temptation. And the primary way Jesus does it is he combats the deception and tricks of the devil with the word of God. And that means we need to fill ourselves with it. Jesus is in the desert. He, he doesn't have a little backpacker's Bible. He doesn't have scrolls with him. He's got the word of God memorized. He's clearly been meditating on and reflecting on the story of Israel and his vocation to be Israel's Messiah. And so from that very story, he rebuffs the temptations of the devil. And that is very instructive to us as Jesus' disciples. All right, now Matthew wraps up his introduction to his gospel with a general paragraph that sets the stage for Jesus' ministry. And so beginning in verse 12, now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And so he had been down in Judea. That's where his baptism and testing occurred. Uh, according to John's gospel, he even had some initial contact with his first disciples in Judea. But now he heads back north, back to Galilee, which is where he grew up. And it's where the majority of his ministry will take place. In fact, Matthew is going to focus his ministry primarily in Galilee and shows us very little connection with Judea. And so he heads back into Galilee. And verse 13 says, And leaving Nazareth, that's his hometown, that's where he grew up, he leaves Nazareth and he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Hold on to Zebulun and Naphtali for a moment. Matthew's going to tell us why that's important in just a second. But let's just talk about Nazareth versus Capernaum. Nazareth was a small town set up on a hill, in some ways isolated from the surrounding towns, right? We've talked about that. And from that hill, you could look down into various uh, uh, locations where great scenes from Israel's history had taken place, scenes recorded in the Old Testament. That's Nazareth, this kind of conservative, small isolated little town. Capernaum, on the other hand, is a city on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, and it's going to become the headquarters for Jesus' ministry. And it was a very strategic location. It was near the border of several political regions, and it sat right on an international highway. And so as a result, it had a customs office, a tax office. It had the military presence of Romans there. It had uh, Jews and it also had some Gentiles, and Jews and Gentiles had to interact with each other. And as a result, um, Capernaum becomes really, I think, very strategic for Jesus to teach his disciples about, even though he's going to focus in his ministry on Israel, he knows he's going to send them out from there to all the world. And so it becomes a strategic location for his disciples to learn and watch the Messiah as he interacts with all different types of people from all different backgrounds and sort of a, a little bit more cosmopolitan, international sort of space. And so Capernaum is very strategic for what Jesus wants to achieve. And Matthew notes that it's in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the original 12 tribes of Israel. And their, uh, their region, Zebulun and Naphtali's region, corresponds roughly to this section of Galilee. Uh, Capernaum was actually in the region uh, uh, that was had been originally allotted to Naphtali. And this is important because look what Matthew says in verse 14. This happened. Jesus 
going into Naphtali, Zebulun, into this section of Galilee, this happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. We've talked about this, how Matthew intends to show Jesus fulfilling these promises to Israel. As the Messiah, he's bringing their story to its culmination point. And in this simple little detail of Jesus' life, Matthew sees another one of those promises uh, kind of reaching a culmination point in Jesus himself. So verses 15 and 16 quote from Isaiah chapter 9, and they give us what was spoken by the prophet. It says this, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Notice that phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's up there to the north where Gentiles have access to it. It's not down there protected like Jerusalem and all of that. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And in Isaiah... Light refers to God's salvation and God's deliverance of Israel through the Davidic king. And so Matthew now, recognizing that Jesus is the culmination of that promise, the culmination of God's deliverance, Matthew presents Jesus as the one who ultimately fulfills this promise. He brings that great light through his life and teaching and ministry. And so Jesus has settled into this region as a great light in a land that is experiencing difficulty and hardship and challenge, and there's foreign oppression, right? And here we are in Capernaum on an international highway, and there's the Roman soldiers, and there's a tax booth where the, the Gentiles can collect money from the Jews, and, and, and in Galilee of the Gentiles, and all of this reminder that exile is not fully over, oppression still remains. And in that, that place, and in that moment, here comes Jesus the faithful son of God, as the ultimate fulfillment that God is going to deliver his people through the Davidic king. Then Matthew uh, offers a general summary of Jesus' message, and it's the same message that John the Baptist preached. Look what it says in verse 17. From that time on, ministry now is beginning, and preparation is over. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And with that, Matthew has wrapped up the introduction to his gospel. He's now got Jesus beginning his ministry. And Jesus is saying, in and through him, the kingdom of heaven is now breaking into the present world, even there in Galilee of the Gentiles. All right, thanks for tuning into this session on the listener's commentary on the gospel of Matthew. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of all sorts of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your generosity and your support financially. Thanks a ton for your prayers, for the Lord's blessing and favor on this. Here's two ways you can help out. One, you can share the listener's commentary with your audience, either on your podcast, to your email list, on a text thread, with friends and family, at your church. Uh, you can share the listener's commentary. You can rate and review it. Uh, on your podcast player. All of that helps more people find it and discover it. Uh, and also, if you've been blessed and impacted in some way, uh, you could join the team of financial supporters by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and setting up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation right there. All monthly donors get access to the Study Hub. So whether you sign up through the Give button, whether you sign up for the Study Hub, monthly uh, donors get access to the all the extra material in the Study Hub to help you dig in and learn and live the Bible. 
Thanks a ton for your support.